This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world including 75% of the Fortune 500 trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian from BBC Science Focus, this is Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Daniel Bennett, magazine's editor, and for today's episode, I'm very happy to say we're talking about medical detection dogs. These are canine friends that can be used to sniff out disease. I'm joined by Dr. Claire Guest, the co-founder of the Medical Detection Dogs Charity, which for the last decade and a half has been pioneering research that has proven that a dog's incredible ability to pick up a scent can be used to detect diseases like cancer in samples of urine. That research was first published a few years ago now, and today the dogs are deployed around the world in all sorts of ingenious ways. But before we get ahead of ourselves, here's Dr. Guest explaining what a medical detection dog can do. A medical detection dog is a dog that's been trained to find human disease by recognition of of a specific odour that occurs, an odour change that occurs when we have a particular disease or condition. Now, this work um, comes from many anecdotes and actually many, many centuries ago, Doctors use their nose, they use their sense of smell in order to help them diagnose particular diseases and conditions. You know, we have our own unique odors as, as, as individuals, um, but when we become unwell, this odor changes. And dogs with their incredible sense of smell can smell these differences, been trained to find them and tell, tell us about them. We've actually got sort of different ways in which our dogs work. So we have um, our biodetection dogs. And what these dogs do is they are trained to uh, tell us whether or not 
um, a particular disease or condition change the odour. But this dog only um, smells samples, so samples that have been collected from people, so sweat samples or breath samples or urine samples, and these will come to the dog at a training centre. The dog will then be trained to see whether it can discriminate this one particular disease um, from, from other diseases and from healthy people. But we also have our medical assistance dog program. And this is sort of the first tangible sort of the first tangible use of a medical detection dog. And this is where a dog works alongside an individual, you know, like a guide dog would, keeping them safe. But instead of guiding by using the dog's eyes, what the dogs are doing are using their nose to indicate to the individual when an oncoming medical emergency might be about to occur. Now, what we're talking about is people who have got chronic conditions but have acute episodes which result in hospital admission. The dogs are trained to give a pre-warning to say, hey, you're about to become very unwell. You need to take your medication or you need to sit down. And this then um, prevent, you know, uh, results in the, the person being able to take um, a, a change of action, which means that they hopefully don't end up in hospital. So what I'm talking about, traditionally, we trained a number of dogs for people who were type 1 diabetic, but people who had very, very uh, big problems managing their, their blood sugars. Um, there's something called um, uh, hyperglycemic unawareness, which basically means that people don't aren't aware when their blood sugars are going dangerously low. So for a non-diabetic, if we need to take on sugar, we tend to feel a bit dizzy and a bit weird. And angry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, for people with um, type 1 diabetes, many people get no warning at all. And the first warning they will have is when they go unconscious. So the dog is actually trained to sniff blood sugar levels and can tell them when they're starting to drop to the low levels, warn them, bring the blood testing kit, and and uh, the person is then able to correct their own blood sugar levels and and and, and prevent a medical emergency. Amazing. So you so you have these kind of diagnostic dogs who who sniff samples and um, will help you distinguish between a healthy patient and perhaps one that you need needs further medical attention and then you have these kind of assistant type guide dogs who 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 live with patients i presume and help them manage their their condition so i've got hundreds of questions um because I, it's just completely fascinating to me so i mean the, f- the first off you, you you touched on it there so so this idea that we can smell illness is is an old one um i wondered when did this when did we first start using dogs specifically in this in this way and and how did it how did it kind of come about that you that we realized that actually they've got incredible noses <laughs> illnesses absolutely. give on smell here we go this is a here great go, idea. yeah put the two yeah. together well absolutely i mean as you, you know as we said yes um the use of odors in the recognition of disease has gone back you know since the days of um, Socrates, I believe. So we're talking a long, you know, a long history in there being an understanding that particular diseases do have characteristic odors. And of course, we've also been using dogs for many years um, to keep us safe by sniffing drugs, explosives, etc. So, you know, the model of using a dog's nose, this incredibly powerful biosensor that the dog has naturally got, um, is is not a new one. And but when did it come together? Well, actually, strangely, very, very recently in terms of, you know, the history of, of man, um, 
in the 80s, there started to be anecdotal reports um, that seemed to be saying the same thing. And in fact, I was privileged enough to work alongside an individual whose dog um, had kept on licking and sniffing at a small mole on her calf. Now, the lady, Gillian Lacey, was a young girl. She was uh, in her late teens. Um, but this dog persistently did it, and to the point where it became irritating. You know, she said it just you could see its nose start sniffing the air, and then it would come along and find this mole and keep on and on and on and on licking at it. Eventually, went to her GP. GP looked at the mole and said, "I don't think there's anything to you know, nothing unusual here, but you know, let's remove the mole." He did, and she was called back to be told she had malignant melanoma, um, the most serious form of skin cancer. Uh, also, and somebody of her age would almost certainly have um, been, uh, unfortunately, fatal very quickly because it would have spread very rapidly. Now, at the same time as Jill told me this story, there are other stories coming up around the world um, of people saying similar things, that they thought their dog had warned them about cancers. or um, And these stories were picked up by uh, Dr. John Church, who's my co-founder, And Dr. Church is an incredibly open-minded medic. He was actually a surgeon in Rwanda for many years. Um, And he was, in fact, the only doctor, he said. For many years, people would walk miles to see him. Um, And he said, I'd often use my nose. I didn't have a lot of, (laughs) I didn't have a lot of sort of equipment in this hospital. (laughs) Um, He said, I'd use my nose to try and help me. He heard of these anecdotes and he actually wrote them in a letter to the Lancet Medical Journal saying, you know, I've heard so many of these stories now, I think there's something we need to look into. I heard that he'd done this, actually, by listening to, I was listening to a Radio 4 interview, and um, to cut a long story short, we got together and found that we lived about 20 minutes from each other. Decided then to do the first proof of principle study to find out whether or not dogs could actually be trained to find the odour of cancer. Um, it was a wonderful team. We worked with the Bucks NHS Trust and we actually started with bladder cancer. The reason being that, you know, if this, if this um, was possible, that, you know, dogs could smell cancer, then we thought, well, let's start with um, urine and see if, if a, a, a tumour in the bladder drops any odour into, into the urine sample. And we discovered, yes, after a very short amount of training, that dogs could rely, well, they could find bladder cancer i mean the, the early results were much lower than we were getting these days but it was a very small sample set and it was actually published in the british medical journal in september 2004 and from that point on really certainly myself and and dr church were just absolutely committed to taking this as far as is possible in order to assist in the saving of human lives so there's there's a lot there so so in, in in the instance of say the the bladder cancer trials that you you, you sort of first started with, there you're you're essentially asking the dogs to essentially identify one scent, something with a certain scent to to a sample without a scent. So they exactly they're just able to tell difference. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, we now work with um, quantum physicists in, in the USA, and I'll probably tell you a bit more about that, but. What we realise, and, and you know, is that odour is um, complex. You know, it's 
Um, it's made up of a number of things, and the perception of the odor is very much, you know, how we uh, our senses interpret it, the odor. So it, you can't look at a, a group of chemicals and necessarily know what they're going to smell like. Um, so it's a perceptual thing. But to give an example, um, if I if I I'm going to sing really badly now, and I do apologise <laughs> beforehand. I, I don't won't sing. I'll hum. Sing <laughs> but um, if I say Da, 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 da. you probably immediately recognize that now normally that is done by an orchestra it's done by an orchestra with many many uh instruments and it's a very complex piece of music but i've just done it really badly but you knew what the pattern was now if i'd given you the notes if i'd written a note to you and said right these are notes i'm going to show you these notes what am i about to sing you haven't any idea at all and that would seem to be the complication with odor that if you put something into a mass spectrometer, a gas chromatographer, it will give you the ingredients, but it don't, as in it will give you the notes, but it won't tell you what, what, it's what, what it sound sounds like, like what yeah. it smells like. Exactly. Okay. And the dog is actually a, a complex pattern recognizer. So what he's able to do is recognize that pattern. So if he sees that little bar of music or that, that odor in a sample, he says, yeah, that's it. And that's even if it's played by a violin, hummed by me or played on a recorder, the dog will still recognise the pattern. And that's where the science of the dog's capability in olfaction um, and actually technology in the future, that's why it's such an important synergy because only the dog actually knows what cancer smells like at this moment. So I'm going to quiz you about those quantum physicists in a short while, but but just first, so just to go back to those anecdotes of some of the early, um, you know, there was the one that you talked about with the um, melanoma. I, I'd, I'd read about uh, other dogs sort of pestering their owners when they could sense something was wrong. Do, do we know whether the dogs were able to uh, understand that they were smelling something sort of like a foreign body or mm. a, a kind mm. of not something of you? I suppose yeah, absolutely. they may not have known, understand what cancer no, is. But... Exactly, exactly. It's a very interesting question. I think the one thing about a dog is a dog is the dog, dogs are neophilic, which basically means that dogs are interested in new things. And that's actually how we're able to train them to new things because as soon as they spot something new, they're interested. That's that's what how dogs are programmed. So it's a good question. Is it something new, something different that they are um just 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 investigating or have they got a sense as well that it's something that could be harmful now it's quite difficult to know because dogs domestic the domestic dog has learned to communicate incredibly well with with humans and of course one of the roles of a, a domestic dog regardless of the type of dog um and the way it lives they are they 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 they, they want to keep us safe that is sort of hardwired into yeah. into our relationship <laughs> So the question is, yes, is it simply a that's new, that's interesting? Or is there an element of it's new and interesting and actually concerning? Now, of course, the dog doesn't know it's cancer, but he may well have at some level an understanding that if it was something that appeared in his dog pack, that it was possibly a threat, that the odour was a threatening type of odour. So I suspect it's a combination of the two, although, of course, it'd be quite hard to, to prove that. So... Um, that brings me nicely then to um, how do you uh, sort of 
select for a medical detection dog. Um, can can any dog uh, sort of be trained in this manner, or are there there certain um, types of dog that you know? Obviously, the the obvious one that comes to mind is something like a bloodhound because of mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. how famous they are in fiction and and even in the world for their sense of smell. But uh, do, do you, how do you pick a, a future dog? So when you look at the anecdotal stories, the dogs that were warning people one on one, and also the dogs that we place as assistance dogs, um, you're looking for a dog, yes, with a good nose. You know, so we use a lot of gun dogs and dogs that have got, um, you know, so longer noses and 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 interested in sniffing. Um, but actually, in that particular. Uh, type of detection the relationship is really important which is why we go back to what we just talked about does the dog see it as some sort of threat it's that relationship the dog has with the human that seems to make them particularly keyed in cued into to a change in odor so we tend to for that role pick dogs that bond very closely with their with their owner for the buyer detection dogs the dogs that are looking for different changes in odor on samples we use a different type of temperament Actually, in that situation, you want sort of these high drive spaniels, high drive dogs that love being busy, love right. rushing around, <laughs> finding, looking, finding, looking. Um, the sort of dogs that actually might be quite tricky as pets because they're constantly on the go, constantly wanting to find. Um, they have those dogs have to be quite independent because actually, when we train them, once we've gone through the early training stages, we don't actually know what's in the sample. So we need the dog to say, Do you know, I'm brave enough to make this decision myself and I'm going to tell you it's here. So they tend to be quite busy, independent characters. So um, actually, you know, there's quite a, a variety of breeds we use. Yes, of course, the fact that pet dogs, it was the anecdotes from pet dogs that enabled us to know that this was possible. In theory, um, and actually in practice around the world still, there are still reports of people saying, you know, my dog's just done something really strange and it, it, it made me you know, take notice of something and actually I went on to find I, I got a tumour or an illness. So yes, of course, it is still happening. But for the work that we do, we would normally use dogs that are, that are pre-trained. So we'd be selecting dogs with particular temperaments. And um, what's the kind of what's the kind of scope of this then? Um, we've talked about, uh, a couple of conditions they can they can detect. Um, another quite famous one that was recently in the news was in COVID detection. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see how that would immediately be useful at things like airports and uh, places like that. What what else can they sniff out? I think it's slip. No, no, that's absolutely so. Oh, um, <laughs> so. What we've seen so far is that there doesn't seem to be any end to the ability of dogs to detect disease. So what you're really looking at is, you know, what diseases should we be focusing on in order to you know, assist in, in, in protecting human health? And actually, what diseases do the dogs find you know, most straightforward in terms of, of, of um, detection? So, you know, we know for our, our assistance dogs that the dogs can detect, as I say, uh, blood sugar changes. We also now, now know they can detect Addison's crisis, so they can detect changes in our cortisol levels um, and um, cortisol adrenaline levels. And we also know that dogs are incredibly reliable at detecting a condition called POTS. Now, POTS is relatively newly um, recognised. It's a condition where it's often young people actually develop a condition where they suddenly collapse. 
It's not a narcoleptic collapse, so they're not going to sleep and they don't have seizures. But what happens is they they literally drop to the floor. I mean, if you if you ever stood beside somebody who has POTS, I mean, it isn't it isn't graceful. It's uh, instant. It's caused by sudden rapid heart rate and a sudden a drop in blood pressure. Currently, there's no way of knowing when you're about to have an attack. And some individuals will have them 10, 15 times a day. These uh, individuals become have to and sadly be, become use wheelchairs because because the drop is so instant. Um, they fall on people, on things. They break things. They break arm bones. They damage their faces. That, you know, so we just dis- we discovered that dogs can reliably detect um, a pulse attack about three to five minutes before it happens. And so we have a huge um, demand for our, our POTS detection dogs. Moving to the sort of biodetection dogs, what we've always believed in terms of cancer and, and, and other diseases such as cancer, where you've got complex pathways, you know, the, 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 it isn't just about knowing whether you have cancer, it's how bad is it, how advanced it is, um, where is it, has it spread, all these things. We never believed that the dog would be actually used as the diagnostic. Our vision as a charity was always that we needed to learn from the dog. You know, if a dog can smell the odour of prostate cancer in a urine sample, then ultimately a machine can. And when you look at how um, difficult the uh, accurate detection of prostate cancer is, um, PSA currently uh, up to 75% false positive. I mean, that's massive. Uh, people tend to think, you know, because you're looking at a medical test, it's got to be, you know, it's going to be 100%, isn't it? And then you find actually, no, it's nowhere near, but it's the best we've got, so we use it. The dog has this uh, ability to detect prostate cancer from a drop of urine. Um, We have had results well into the 80%. um, And what we're looking to do with that is we are looking to translate this now, of course, we haven't got the expertise here to know how to, to translate what the dog's nose knows, if you like, into an electronic device, but we have teamed up with people that do. So we've teamed up with um, a quantum physicist called Andreas Mershon, who works out of MIT. And um, Andreas has has developed a, a sort of a nose, an electronic nose, which um, works in a very similar way to a dog's nose. Don't ask me too much detail because I don't. But the actual sensors in it are as 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 accurate as as a dog's nose. But what the nose is is missing is the brain that makes interpretation. So we're working with Andreas and now artificial intelligence designers, and I have to say the best in the world. But guess who is informing the artificial intelligence what the smell is? The dog. Um, one of your dogs, yeah. Exactly, because we don't know what the smell is. So so the what the what the dog can do is smell a whole range of samples and say, this sample here, now this is really this is exactly what cancer smells like to me. This is a really good example of it. So that gives that artificial intelligence data set you can give the dog another sample sometimes which may well have come from somebody with cancer but the dog says you know what that's a tough one like you know a smells faint there and these data points go into the artificial intelligence and the, the artificial intelligence starts to learn what the smell is so you train the dogs 
and, and the, the dog trains the AI. AI. Exactly and that. The AI goes on to sort of. Yeah, exactly that. So, in terms of things like cancer and other, once we've, you know, we've, we've been working on prostate cancer with the teams for four or five years, but um, the teams are very hopeful they'll have something, you know, for, for, for clinical trial before before too long. In terms of cancer, it's about translating the dog's ability into something else. Um, in terms of the assistance dogs, it's very much helping those individuals who have no other alternatives at the moment. So, for example, in diabetes, actually, though we started in diabetes uh, 14 years ago, we now find that the technology has improved so much that people are now aware Libra devices that they scan with the phones and have a continuous glucose monitor system. So we're finding the need for a dog in glucose monitoring is, 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 is decreasing. But you mentioned COVID, so that's our sort of new interest and in, 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 in work is that could a dog work in an environment where the dog, one dog screens hundreds or thousands of people? So instead of the one dog to one person model or the dog going to an electronic device, could it be? Could there be situations where a dog would be of huge value sniffing numerous people and looking for the same disease? The COVID model taught us that that is possible. COVID itself wasn't straightforward for so many reasons. We could do another podcast on it, but it's um, to do with the changing, the variant changes, the, um, the government changes in terms of policy and the way in which we test for, you know, uh, is somebody ch- testing on an LFT or on a PCR and, you know, various things make actual COVID itself quite a tricky landscape. But we are now looking very much at the dog's ability to detect, say, bacteria in groups. And we're actually looking at vulnerable groups. So groups, for example, where they may be very prone to urinary tract infections, which can result in delirium and a, and a, and a, and a fall before anybody really knows that a UTI has started. So all the work we did in COVID, and we still have COVID dogs, and they are still being still being used, but they're not being used in the, perhaps the, the, the settings we originally anticipated they might. Um, but the information knowledge we've gained from that work is now being translated into other 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 projects. So incredibly exciting to see that you know one dog could actually and they, you know one dog could sniff three hundred people in half an hour without any problem. So we're talking you know quite big numbers. Um, so just just now, I just want to go back to the example of the um, the medical assistance dogs and and pots. Um, just to give our uh, listener a sort of a real sense of what like how the dog is doing it. So in that circumstance, or, or maybe there's an easier um, another easier example, is, is it changes in our sweat that the dog is able to smell, and it and is it is the dog just suddenly smelling the presence of a chemical or is it the kind of, you know, an increase over time of this mm, chemical? And mm. then, you know, how, how does that whole process we, work? We, we don't know for absolutely sure, you know, what it is that the dogs um, look for when they notice this change. But clearly, yes, when, when a sort of a major event is occurring and we're becoming, you know, our heart rate's uh, racing and our blood pressure's dropping, the body is going into, um, you know, a sort of shock mechanism. And there are, of course, a lot of hormones, internal hormones, endocrines, things that are changing at that point. We may even be, without knowing it, starting to hyperventilate. So our oxygen, carbon dioxide ratios may be changing. There's a whole range of things that that sudden acute episode, there'll be 
um, odour changes in this that were coming out of our skin and coming out of our breath. Now, quite what the dog uses or whether the dog uses a combination of things, we don't yet know. But what right. we do know is that, you know, three to five minutes before a POTS drop attack, nobody, no, no human with any technology currently can say to that person, be careful, you're about to just, you're in, in, in three minutes, you're going to fall flat on your face. So whatever it is, isn't that obvious, if you see what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, the dog, absolutely. So the, what the dogs are trained to do is monitor the odour of the client they're with. So, you know, just through, not through sort of anything obvious, actually, but these are dogs that are beside the person, you know, being stroked by the person um, and just sat with them. And then suddenly you just see, you see their noses start to twitch. And then what we train the dog to do is, so the dog himself is, is understands that that odour is the odour I'm interested in. What we have to do as well is say to the dog, okay, when you smell that odour, this is how you communicate it to your your owner Don't that you smelt it, it. <laughs> yes so you either you know some of our dogs paw some of the dogs stare intently many of the pots dogs stop so if, say you're walking on the street the dog will just stop and stare and the person knows i'm going to fall any minute so um so it's about the dog detecting but then communicating because of course probably lots of pet dogs detect it in terms of the dog is aware that something's happened, but what he's not able to do is communicate back what's going to happen. So it's a combination of the two things. So this this strikes me as, you know, so I, I cover a lot of research where we're learning more and more about how dogs communicate with us on a visual level. Mm-hmm. They, mm. they're, they're really good at understanding our yes. gaze, where we're looking at, what we're pointing Absolutely. at. Absolutely. Um, is there a, probably a whole overlooked sort of communication pathway in smells uh, in the way that they understand us. Absolutely. And do you know what? It's very interesting because you're quite right. Research now has done uh, come a long way in understanding how a domestic dog, you know, when he's, a puppy's born, is already clued into our looking at how we visually, uh, facially look, you know, finger pointing. Um, they are very sophisticated in reading reading humans visually. Actually, for medical detection dogs, that can be a disadvantage. If we get a dog that is very good at watching somebody visually, we quite often find that they try and do it visually without using their nose. And actually, that doesn't work. So um, what we what we do is when we get our young dogs, we're encouraging that use of nose right from the start. You know, I want you to use your nose. Hey, find this, look for that. You know, isn't that a great great game of course which they they of course they do because they have these phenomenal noses um but yes we have to be careful actually not to let visual you know the dog communication with visually override that otherwise we do find that the dogs never really learn the alerting correctly i mean it's a really interesting thing i mean you know we use a dog's eyes and domestically clearly living with us dogs have become incredibly good at reading our emotions visually but of course Olfaction, I mean, they have um, 350 million sensory receptors in their olfactory epithelium. That's the sort of average dog with a sort of medium-sized nose. Um, they have a much larger part of the brain um, that is um, dedicated to olfaction. And they also have this organ of Jap- Jacobson, which is at the back of the throat, which is a pheromonal screen as well. So, in fact, what the dogs 
do is as they sniff an odor they do it in a in a way that we look we we see something so um they're getting uh odor uh, information from the right and left nostril and that's coming into the epithelium so they're also making a comparison which is how we believe we see you know right and left eye gives you a you then get this match don't you to see to see exactly what's in front of you at the same time a dog will gulp air back into the back of his throat and he'll push air up into the epithel into the um, organ of Jack Jacobson so at the same time that air is being sensed uh, in the epithelium it's being analyzed in the organ of Jacobson and that goes to a slightly different part of the brain that's looking at much longer molecule chains so in fact in an instant there's so much going on and in fact what the dog does when he does that rapid sniff and many dog owners know when their dog's interested because the dog changes from a normal breathing sniff to a really rapid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and what they're doing then is they're actually are oh, like little pumps. They're firing out little <laughs> air that whirls the whirls the molecules round and sh and pulls molecules up much more rapidly. So they become like little little odor hoovers. And um, the other thing, which is of huge interest, is and you ask. Uh, why do dogs have slits at the side of their noses? We don't. Why do they? And that's because they can exhale hair they, air they've used at the same time as inhaling new air. I see, right. So it's a continuous. Yeah. yeah, it's not to be tried at home by humans. We make lots of funny snorty <laughs> noises. Yeah, <laughs> no, we... <laughs> I'm familiar with that. My partner's very familiar with that. It's kind of a snorty <laughs> noise at night. Um, so, you know, so they can push it out at the same time as they're pulling it in. I mean, they are adapted to olfaction it's incredible but through their history with man we've almost apart from the instances with drugs and explosive dogs for example we've almost tried to uh reduce that you know puppies are very used to being taught don't sniff that don't sniff that person it's rude don't sniff them there it's really rude constant where the dog is trying to gain olfactory information so yeah, I mean, I think it's something that has been very poorly used. Um, and, um, you know, in terms of the way that dogs have adapted to living with us, I think their visual ability to read us has, 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 has improved. So so looking ahead then, lastly, um, with everything that you've just said, it, it, you know, obviously we don't want teams of dogs in labs having to spend all their days sniffing out this cancer or that cancer which is why they you know m making a machine version makes so much sense but for other reasons as well but do, do we do we anticipate we can actually replicate what they do so well given you know all the all of the, the skills that they have mm, it, mm. It, does that seem like a, a challenge that we can kind of uh, yeah achieve? I mean I think the the the, the, the teams we work with um, are sure that in time of course it's time is you know researchers can be can be, can be can be difficult to judge but there will be sensors that reliably do what the dogs are currently able to do now it's interesting because um andreas Mersch, the quantum physicist um was a captain kirk fan 
Um, and so was I. I was brought up on Star Trek. So apologies to those that don't remember William Shatner as Captain Kirk. But uh, <laughs> um, I was going to marry William Shatner. There was just one problem with it that he he wasn't aware of that. But uh, um, so, but they used to walk around on on the Starship Enterprise in those days, um, and they used to have these little phone walkie-talkie things that you know flip up phones, and they used to speak to each other. And this is you know so well before we had mobile phones and you know it was like oh well that could happen and then you they'd even have things where people's faces would be on screens and the person would be talking on the screen and I mean this is well before it's time I mean now we've all got that you know we've all got a phone that's got a screen and um how um it, actually in Star Trek they also had the doctor who's called Bones who used to scan people with this little scanner volatile scanner to see what was wrong with them We've gone come so so far in technology, and you know what Andrea says is if you think of the rudimentary mobile phone, it was a bit of a surprise that you could even you could even use it as a phone before you know because that you know everything else had been attached to a wall. Suddenly now, suddenly somebody says, okay, the phone's good. What can we do next? Okay, let's put a camera on it. The first cameras were poor; they were grainy; they weren't very good. Now the cameras on our phones are as good as most cameras, most digital cameras. He believes strongly that the next thing will be a nose. Um, there were already some early prototypes, very rudimentary. They only tend to pick out gases in the rooms or, you know, very basic. But, you know, it's starting. And it's a really interesting question, actually, because the same way in which we try and protect our photograph, our, our, our facial, um, um, you know, uh, Sorry, the way we try and protect, you know, photographs of ourselves and, and they belong to us and it's our right. Whether our privacy. Our well, privacy, uh, sorry, that's yeah, right. Yeah. It's a good question whether there's going to be odour privacy because actually <laughs> um, you could look to a time when I can take uh, take some odour off you or I can find out if you've got Parkinson's, if you've got high blood sugar, if you've been drinking, if you've been taking drugs, the whole lot I could do in one one hit if I've got a decent sensor. <laughs> so, you know, will will we start to try and protect our odour? I mean, you know, this is something that is, you know, already been talked about. So it's clearly we're on our way. How good those things will be, I think that will depend on two things, how straightforward the odour is. Some odours are more straightforward than others. And also how much we can use our dogs to help advance the understanding of the differences between odors because it can be a bit needle in the haystack unless you've got something to guide you um but yes is it going to happen yes it's going to happen it will happen will it mean the dogs have got no work not in my lifetime i don't think i think you know there are always going to be situations where the dog could be better more adaptable um where the dog may offer other other things in terms of uh for example you if you did have an electronic device that tells you um that you are going to have a pots attack these pots attacks occur anytime any place the individuals are um if they know they're about to have one they have to lie down this can happen in the supermarket for example you suddenly think i'm going to drop if i can't find a chair i have to lie down somewhere now the dogs sit beside these people then I'm not sure an electronic, electronic advice would be quite so, <laughs> quite so. Although I suppose you could have a, a computer waddling along with you, but do you know what I mean. That the, you know the <laughs> yeah, dog offers not. the dog offers other things as well. So, um, 
And I think with the constantly changing diseases and constantly changing threats, the way in which nature constantly adapts itself, say the, the COVID virus has adapted itself already about 34 times, we're constantly going to need something in nature to help us, and that's going to be the dog. Because, uh, yeah, I think, you know, so there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, so lastly, then, I just want to add that you're a charitable organisation, is that, is that right? So if anyone wants to find out more, get involved, help out or donate, uh, yep. where, where should they go? What should they Absolutely. do? Absolutely. Go on to our website, website um, www.medicaldetectiondogs.org.uk and please do get involved. I mean, um, we're only here because of the support and belief of, of the public. You know, there was a huge amount of scepticism to start with. I, you know, I can't tell you how much scepticism there was. Um, my story, my personal story is that um, after I trained the first cancer dogs um, for the 2004 publication, um, I had a um, personal, personally a very difficult time in life. Um, and my marriage broke up and I was left with with my dogs. Um and Daisy was a dog um, that I'd had since a pup. She was working on prostate cancer on samples. She was a good, really good dog. Um, but she started to become a bit sort of anxious around me and I'd take her home and she'd sit with me and I could see this sort of, she looked slightly upset. I couldn't work out why. And then, um, in fact, other, other people working with me commented on it. One day I opened the back of the car up, set her out for a walk, lifted the boot up um she wouldn't jump out she kept just nudging staring at me and nudging at me in, in my chest so you know I thought it's a bit, bit weird you know so anyway Daisy I then let her go and she went off and had a run round. and as, she, as I was walking around I was sort of feeling where she'd been bumping into me uh found a very very small lump and um I was um not worried but you know in the end I thought well I'll go and get it checked out um and i was um went to a, a specialist um and was referred to a specialist my doctor was concerned and long story short i was diagnosed with a very deep seated breast cancer um i had um surgery hormone treatment lymph node removal radiotherapy etc 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 i'm here 10 years later to tell the tale and my consultants too, my oncologist consultant and my um, breast consultant both said that had Daisy not drawn my attention to it, my prognosis would have been very different because it was extremely deep-seated. And probably by the time uh, it had grown, I would have probably been seriously unwell. Um, I wrote a book about sort of the starting of the charity and, and, and how Daisy had helped me in that support and how her legacy lives on. And, you know... It's still something um, where there still can be scepticism. And I think the scepticism is often um, that people don't take the time to, to understand actually what we, what we want to do, you know, how we believe the dogs are helping us. Um, and the more we can get that message out and the more support we can get, the more lives we can save. I mean, my dad um, was diagnosed with Parkinson's about six years ago, um, Nobody at the moment is diagnosed with Parkinson's until the symptoms are so severe that the, tar the, the damage has been done effectively. So, um, and there's no going back. Um, my dad um, 
helped me set up charities that he was a, as a volunteer he worked tirelessly to, to take the charity forward and yet he died of a disease where there's currently no early diagnostic uh he died three months ago and you know i sort of promised him that you know we would keep working on this because dogs can smell parkinson's without any doubt it's not it's actually not one of the hardest odors they, 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 it seems to have quite a unique odor that they recognize well if dogs can find it earlier treatments can improve it's a terrible debilitating disease so it's about working with medics and working with research to improve health and the prognosis for individuals and that's really what we believe as a charity so you know anybody that does hear this and wants to support us please please do because we're making a massive difference um you know to, to the understanding of, of the way in which you can save human lives in the future that was dr claire guest there the co-founder of the medical detection dogs charity explaining how her dog saved her life if you want to get involved or find out more about these dogs, do head to medicaldetectiondogs.org.uk. That's medicaldetectiondogs.org.uk. Thank you for listening. The Instant Genius Podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine, which you can find on sale now in the supermarket and news agents, as well as on your preferred app store. Alternatively, do and find us online at sciencefocus.com.